Hi, I Adya welcome you to What Saves Me From Drowning The Podcast in the series Storytime where we are reading a book read on by Frederick Parkman. This is the ninth episode containing chapters 22 to 25 and yes, I've been delaying it because now this should get serious. I'll see you on the other side. It's Saturday night and everything is different now. Anna just doesn't know it yet. All she knows is that the older girls in the kitchen laugh at her cruelly when she asks after Maya. That little whore. She went off with Kevin. Don't worry, sweetie. He'll throw her back out when he's done with her. No one on this team holds on to second-rate bitches. Their laughter tears holes in Anna's lungs and her throat tightens. Granted, she could have gone off to look for her best friend and stands there with her phone in her hand for several minutes without actually calling. But anger gets the better of her. Few disappointments can compare with the way you feel the first time your best friend dumps you for a boy. And there's no more silent walk than the one that takes you home alone after a party when you're 15 years old. Anna and Maya found each other as children when they saved each other's life. One pulled the other out of a hole in the ice and in return she pulled the other out of her loneliness. They were opposites in many ways, but they both liked dancing badly, singing loud and going fast on snowmobiles. That goes a long way. Best friends, sisters before misters, and of all the things they've promised each other, the most important, we never desert each other. The girls in the kitchen are still laughing at Anna. They are saying something about her clothes and her body, but she is no longer listening. She has already heard it all in school, corridors, and in comment online. Lit is standing in a corner and catches sight of her and Anna mutters, fuck off, because they all can, the whole lot of them. As she walks out of the forest door, she stops one last time and considers calling Maya, maybe going upstairs to look for her, but she's not going to beg and plead for attention. Even in a town that's covered with snow three quarters of the year, it's unbearably cold standing in the shade of someone who's a bit more popular than you are. Anna puts her phone on silent and drops it in her bag. Humanity has many shortcomings, but none is stronger than pride. She sees Amit and grabs hold of his shoulder. He is so drunk he couldn't even read the top line of an optician's chart. Anna sighs. If you see Maya, tell her I couldn't be bothered to wait for her to decide if she likes peanuts or not. Amit stammers at her in confusion. Where? I mean, what? I mean, who? Anna rolls her eyes. Maya, tell her I'm gone. Where, 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 where is she? The question makes his brain clearer, his voice more sober. Anna feels almost sorry for him. Oh, Amit, don't you get it? Try looking in Kevin's room. Amit shatters into a thousand invisible pieces, but Anna doesn't feel like staying. She doesn't want to be in this house when she herself falls apart. She slams the front door behind her, and the night's cold strokes her cheek. She grew up outside and being stuck behind windows has always felt like being imprisoned. Her breathing becomes easier immediately. Her heartbeat calms. She grew up outside and being stuck behind the windows has always felt like being imprisoned. Social relationships, trying to make friends, be accepted, always starving and sandpapering herself smaller. It makes her feel claustrophobic. She takes the path through the forest in the darkness and feels infinitely safer there than in the house full of people. Nature has never done her any harm. Behind a closed door on the upper floor of the Ardell family house stays the only secret Maya has ever kept from her best friend, that right up to the last moment when she could no longer breathe beneath Kevin, 
she kept telling herself one single thing i mustn't be frightened anna will find me anna won't desert me amit will never be able to explain his reasons jealousy maybe pride probably an inferiority complex possibly infatuation definitely there are two juniors sitting guarding the stairs and when they tell him he can't go upstairs he roars at them surprising not just them but himself and what fucking line do you play it during all those years in little league and the boys team people kept saying his feet were superior but that wasn't what took him all the way it was the way he saw things his eyes were always faster than everyone else's he managed to see more than everyone else remembered every detail of every attack the position of the bags the movements of the goalie the tiniest shift in the corner of his eye when a teammate put his stick on the ice intimidated the juniors get out of the way there are three sections to the staircase on the upstairs landing there are photographs of the entire ardel family and beside them pictures of kevin alone pictures of him everywhere in the hockey gear when he was 5 when he was 6 when he was 7 the same smile every year the same look in his eyes they will ask amit exactly what he heard exactly where he was he will never be able to say if it was a no or a stop or just a desperate muffled scream from behind the palm of a hand that made him react maybe none of those maybe he opened the door out of sheer instinct they will ask him if he was drunk they will glower at him accusingly and say but is it not the case that you are and have been for many years in love with the girl in question the only thing amit will be able to reply to that is that his way of seeing was superior faster than his feet even he pushes the door handle down and stands in the doorway to kevin's room and sees the violets and torn clothes the tears and the fiery red marks left by the boy's finger on the girl's neck one body taking the other against its will he sees everything and afterwards he will dream about the most peculiar details exactly which posters of exactly which nhl players were on the walls amit will remember that for the simplest possible reason he has the same posters on the wall above his bed kevin loses his concentration for 2 seconds when amit rushes through the door that's twice as much time as maya needs she won't remember it as a reaction but as a fight to the death a survival instinct She manages to knee Kevin hard enough to get a tiny gap in which to push his body out of hers. She hits him as hard as she can in the neck and runs. She doesn't know how she gets out of the room, who she passes on the way, if she hits or kicks the juniors guarding the stairs. Perhaps everyone at the party is too drunk to notice her. Perhaps they only pretend not to see. She tumbles out through the door and just runs. The year is halfway into March, but the snow still embraces her feet as she marches along the side of the road in the darkness. Her tears are hot when they leave her eyelids, but already frozen by the time they fall from her chin. You can't live in this town. You can only survive it, as her mum says. Never has that been more true than tonight. Maya tugs her jacket tighter around herself. She'll never know how she managed to take it with her. Her blouse is torn to shreds, the skin on her neck and wrists already black with finger-shaped bruises. She hears Amit's voice behind her but doesn't slow down. The boy stumbles a few last breathless steps in the snow before falling to his knees in it. He's drunk and crushed as he calls her name. In the end, she stops, turns with her fists clenched and stares at him. Her tears now caused by equal part exposure and fury. What happened? Amit whispers. What the hell do you think happened? She replies. We need to. You need to. What? What do I need to do, Amit? What the hell do I need to do? Talk to someone. The police. Uh, anyone. You need to. It won't make any difference, Amit. It won't make any difference what I say because no one will believe me anyway. Why not? 
she rubs the back of her gloves across her eyes and it comes away stained with eyeliner amit is crying too now they are 15 years old and the entire world has collapsed in the course of a single evening a solitary car passes them maya's eyes flare with the reflection of the headlight when it's gone past something goes out inside both her and her eyes because this is a fucking hockey town she whispers amit is left kneeling in the snow as she disappears down the road the last thing he sees before the night swallows her is her sell out against the sign that says welcome to bear down soon she won't be anymore ana opens the door to the house it swings open without a sound on freshly oiled hinges her dad is asleep her mom no longer lives here she walks through the kitchen towards the storeroom the hunting dogs greet her with the cold noises and warm hearts she does what she has been a thousand times in her childhood when the house tank of alcohol and her parents were screaming at each other she sleeps with the animals because the animals have never done her any harm for people who have never lived where darkness and cold are the norm where everything else is the exception it is hard to understand that it is possible to find someone who has frozen to death with their jacket open or even naked but when you get really cold your blood vessels contract and your heart does all it can to stop blood reaching the frozen parts of your body and then coming back to your heart cold not unlike a hockey team suffering a penalty and playing at a numerical disadvantage prioritize resources play defensively defend the heart lungs and brain what happens when the defense finally collapses when you get cold enough is that your box falls apart your goalie does something stupid your back stops communicating with each other and the body parts that were previously shut off from circulation are suddenly switched back on again and then when the warm blood from your heart flows back to your frozen feet and hands you experience an intense rush of heat that's why you suddenly imagine that you're overheating and start to take your clothes off then the chilled blood goes back to your heart and it's all over every couple of years or so someone in beartown goes home drunk after a party and takes a shortcut across the ice or gets lost in the forest or sits down to rest for a moment and is found lifeless in a snow drift the following morning when maya was little she often used to think how strange it was that her mom and dad the two most overprotective parents in the universe chose to settle here of all places somewhere where even nature itself tried to murder their daughter every day As she's got older she's come to realize that the abominations don't go out on the ice alone and don't go into the forest on your own are almost designated to promote team sports every child in beartown grows up with the constant warning that the threat of death is ever present if you're alone she tries calling anna but gets no answer she can't force herself to walk down the main street through town so she wraps her jacket more tightly around herself and takes the narrow road through the forest instead when the car drives past her in the darkness and stops abruptly 50 yards ahead of her panic hits her with full force the adrenaline in her body reacts instantly convincing her that someone is about to run up and grab her and do it to her all over again one of the many things snatched from the girl that night is the place where she never needed to feel afraid everyone has a place like that until it gets taken away from us you never get it back again maya will feel afraid everywhere from now on benji sees her through the car window with newly woken eyes No one walks this way of their own volition at night and he can see that she is limping. He makes Katya stop and is out in the darkness before the car comes to a halt. Maya is hiding behind a tree. You can't do that for more than a minute or so in sub-zero temperatures. The cold forces you to move about in order to keep your circulation going, whether you want to or not. Benji has been hunting in those forests with his sister since he was big enough to hold a rifle. So he sees her. Maya knows he's seen her. Katya calls from the car but to Maya's surprise Benji shouts back It's nothing sis sorry I saw 
I thought I saw. Oh, I've probably just smoked too much. Maya looks directly at him then. He's standing 10 yards away. Her tears are freezing at the same rate as his. But he merely gives a curt nod to the darkness and then turns around and disappears. He knows too much about how it feels to have to hide to give away someone else doing the same. As the red tail lights of the car fade into the night, Maya stays where she is with her forehead against the tree trunk, sobbing hysterically without making a sound, with no tears. There are thousands of ways to die in Bear Town, especially on the inside. 23. Peter and Kira wake up happy, laughing. That's what they will remember about this day and they will hate themselves for it. The very worst events in life have that effect on a family. We always remember, more sharply than anything else, the last happy moment before everything fell apart. The second before the crash, the ice cream at the gas station just before the accident, the last swim on holiday before we came home and received the diagnosis. Our memories always force us back to those very best moments, night after night, prompting the questions, could I have done anything differently? Why did I just go around being happy? If only I'd known what was going to happen, could I have stopped it? Everyone has a thousand wishes before a tragedy, but just one afterwards. When a child is born, its parents dream of it being as unique as possible until it gets ill when suddenly all they want is for everything to be normal. For several years after Isaac died, Kira and Peter felt a terrible, lacerating guilt every time they laughed. Shame can still catch us when they feel happy making them wonder if it's a betrayal of their own child that they didn't disintegrate entirely when he left them. One of all the terrible effects of grief is that we interpret its absence as egotism. It's impossible to explain what you have to do in order to carry on after a funeral, how to put the pieces of a family back together again, how to live with the dragged edges. So what do you end up asking for? You ask for a good day, one single good day, a few hours of amnesia. So today, the morning after a hockey game, Peter and Kira wake up happy, laughing. He whistles as he potters about in the kitchen. When she gets out of the shower, they kiss each other the way adults do when they forget that they are parents. Leo, 12 years old, runs from the table in disgust. His mum and dad laugh into each other's mouths. One single good day. Maya hears them from her room. She's lying deeply cocooned under the covers. They haven't even discovered that she's home yet. They think she spent the night at Anna. When they open the door and look surprised, she will explain that she isn't it. She isn't well. She's wearing two pairs of jogging clothes to make sure her forehead feels warm enough. She can't tell her parents the truth. She hasn't got the heart to do that to them. She knows they wouldn't survive. She's not thinking like someone who's been the victim of a crime. She's thinking like someone who's committed one. All she can think is that no one must ever know that she must get rid of all the evidence. So when her dad drives Leo to practice and her mum goes to the supermarket, Maya creeps out of the bed and washes the clothes she was wearing yesterday so that no one will see the stains. She will put her shredded blouse in a plastic bag and walk towards the door. But there she will stop and she will stand there in the doorway, shaking with terror, unable to bring herself to walk to the dustbin. A thousand wishes yesterday. One single one today. Benji's three sisters have always communicated in different ways. His youngest sister Gabby talks and his middle sister Katya listens. His eldest sister, Audrey, shouts. If you have three younger siblings, when your dad goes out into the forest with a rifle, you grow up faster than you should and maybe become harder than you would really like to be. Audrey doesn't let Benji sleep off his hangover and forces him to get up and help her with the dogs all morning. 
When that's done, she drags him over to the outbuilding that's been fitted out as a small rig and makes him pump weights until he throws up. He doesn't complain. He never does. Audrey could lift more than him until a couple of years ago, but when he passed her, he did so at astonishing speed. She has seen him take down three fully grown men over at the barn when they've said something inappropriate to Katya. The sisters often talk about it when he isn't there. The things they see in their little brother's eyes when he gets really angry. Their mum always says that she doesn't know what would have happened to the boy if he hadn't found hockey. But his sisters know all too well what would have happened. They've seen men like that in the barn and at the gym and in a thousand other places. Hockey gave Benji a context, a structure, rules. But above all, it rewarded the best side of him, his boundless heart and unshakable loyalty. It provided a focus for his energy, channeling it into something constructive. All through his childhood, he used to sleep with his hockey stick beside him. And sometimes, Audrey is pretty sure he still does. When her little brother lets go of the bar and rolls off the bench to throw up for the third time, she hands him a bottle of water and sits down on a stool next to him. So, what's the problem? I'm just hungover, he groans. His phone rings. It's been doing that all day, but he refuses to answer it. No, not the problem with your stomach, you donkey. What's the problem up here? She sighs and points to his temple. He wipes his mouth with the back of his hand and drinks small sips of water. Oh, just a thing with care. Argument? Sort of. So, just crap. His phone goes on ringing. Audrey shrugs and lies back on the bench. Benji stands behind her and spots her as she lifts the bar. He has always wished she could have played hockey longer. She would have beaten the shit out of the whole junior team. She played for the girls team in Kiev for a few when she was young until driving there and back several evenings a week got too much for their mother. There was no girls team in Beartown. Never has been. Sometimes Benji wonders how good his sister could have been. She gets the game. She yells at him for making the same sort of tactical mistakes that David tells him off for. And she loves it. The way her brother loves it. When she's done, she pats him on the cheek and says, You hockey boys are like dogs. To do something stupid, all you need is the opportunity. To do something good, all you need is a reason. So, he mutters. She smiles and points at his phone. So stop being such an old woman, little brother, and go and talk to Kevin. Because if I have to listen to that ringtone one more time, I'm going to drop the bar on your face. Ahmed calls Maya's number 10 times. A hundred times. She's not answering. He can still see every detail, thinks about it so mm. intently that he starts trying to convince himself that he might have imagined it all. A misunderstanding. God, how wonderful that would be if everything he thought he'd seen hadn't happened. He was drunk, after all. Jealous. He calls Maya's number over and over again. Doesn't leave any messages on voicemail. Sends no texts. He goes out running in the forest until he's too tired to think, running all day, so he can collapse with exhaustion that evening. Kevin is standing in the garden. All hockey players are used to playing through pain. There's always some little injury somewhere. A groin strain, a sprain, a fractured finger. Not a week passes in the junior team without someone talking about how they can't wait until they're old enough to play without a grill on their helmet. Get rid of the shopping cart, they plead. Even though they've seen all A players who've been hit in the face with pucks and sticks, they're not afraid of it, but are actively looking forward to it. When they were small, they all saw a player standing after a game with 20 stitches in his lip from splitting his cheek open. But when asked, doesn't it hurt, he merely grinned and said, can't pretend it doesn't sting a bit when I chew tobacco. It's Sunday afternoon and the Ardell house, empty and silent, has been cleaned to perfection. Kevin is standing in the garden firing puck after puck after puck. Even in the little league, he learned to play through any pain, even to enjoy it. Blood blisters, fractures, cuts, concussions, they never affected his game. 
but this is different. Now two deep scratches on one hand are making him shoot his pucks higher, high above the neck. The front door is unlocked. Benji walks through the house and notices that apart from a mark on the door to the basement, the house looks like it always does, as if no one has ever lived there. He stands in the patio door and watches Kevin spray pucks all over his neighbor's flower beds as if he were firing blind. Kevin's eyes are bloodshot and furious when they meet his. There you are. I must have called you a thousand times. And now I'm here, Benji replies. You need to answer when I call, Kevin snarls. Benji's words come slowly, his eyebrows lower, threateningly. I think you must be confusing me with Lit or Bobo. I'm not your slave. I answer when I feel like it. Kevin points at him with the tip of his stick. It's quivering with rage. Have you finished taking drugs now then? We're playing in the final next weekend. Everyone's acting like we've done enough just getting there. We need to get the guys together and make them all understand that I demand from this them this week. So you need to be available. I won't tolerate the fact that when your team needs you the most, you vanish in a puff of smoke. Benji doesn't know if he means puff of smoke as a joke or if Kevin's too stupid to appreciate the double meaning. It's always hard to tell with Kevin. He's both the smartest and the stupidest person Benji knows. Know why I left the party? Kevin snorts. Yeah, because you're a fucking saint, right? Benji's eyes stare at Kevin's intently and without looking away. When Kevin eventually averts his gaze and looks away, his friend asks, What happened last night, Kev? Kevin lets out a curt laugh and throws his arm out. Nothing. Everyone was drunk. You know what it's like. What happened to your hand? Nothing. I saw Maya in the forest. It didn't look like nothing. Kevin spins around as if he were about to hit Benji with his stick. His lips are quivering, his pupils burning. So now you give a damn. What the hell does it matter to you anyway? You weren't even here. You'd rather go to here and get wasted than stay here with your best friends, your team. Benji's eyes are staring intently at the way Kevin's are moving. Kevin looks away again, fires a puck so high above the net that it should be recategorized as a hunting weapon and mumbles. I needed you yesterday. Benji doesn't answer, which always makes Kevin lose his temper with him and he roars. You weren't here, Benji. You're never here when I need you. Lit was sick all over the fucking kitchen and someone banged into the cellar door and left a huge mark on it. Have you got any idea what's going to happen when my dad gets home and sees it? Do you have any idea or have you smoked away all? I don't give a fuck about your dad. I want to know what happened last night, Benji interrupts. Kevin takes five quick steps and breaks his stick on the top of the goal. And it snaps into two razor-sharp projectiles, one of which misses Benji's face by a hand's width. But he doesn't blink. Really? You don't give a shit about my dad's? You ungrateful fucking... Who's been paying for your skates and sticks and gear for the past 10 years? Didn't you give a shit about him then either? Do you think your mum could have afforded all that? Christ, my dad's right about you. He's always been right about you. You're a virus, Benji. A fucking virus. You can't live without some sort of host. Benji takes two steps forward, just two. His face is expressionless. What happened last night, Kev? What do you want? Is this some fucking police interrogation? What's your problem? Don't be a coward, Kev. You want to lecture me about being a coward? You want to talk about cowardice? For fuck's sake. You're the one who's fucking... Who's a fucking... A fucking... Benji moves so fast that Kev breathes the last words onto his face. Their eyes are just a few inches away from each other. Benji's are wide open. What? What am I, Kev? Tell me. Kevin's skin is pulsating. His eyes running. His neck is red and blue on one side as if he's been punched hard by someone with small hands. 
He backs away and picks up part of the broken stick and slams it into the gold, making the metal sing. Get out of the house, Ovid. You've sponged off my family for long enough. He doesn't turn around to watch Benji go, nor when he hears the front door slam shut. They get home late. The house looks like it did when they left it. Their son is pretending to be asleep. They don't knock on his door. Kevin's father finds two sheets of paper on the kitchen counter on which Kevin has given a careful account of all the statistics of each period of the game. Minutes played, shots, assists, goals, numerical superiority and inferiority, possession, penalties, mistakes. His father spends a couple of minutes sitting in the glow of a single lamp and smiles in a way that he doesn't let anyone see anymore. So proud. A man with less impulse control would have gone upstairs and kissed his sleeping son on his forehead. His mother notices things that his father misses. She sees the pictures that the cleaner has mixed up and hung in the wrong order. The table that is slightly askew in the living room. A scrap of the plastic covering that got beneath one of the corners of the sofa. But above all, she sees the mark on the cellar door. While her husband is sitting in the kitchen, she takes a deep breath and slams her suitcase into it as hard as she can. He comes running and she apologizes, saying she tripped and let go of the case. He helps her up and holds her and whispers, Don't look so upset. It's only the cellar door. It's just a little mark, darling. Then he shows her the sheets of paper and says, They won. She laughs into his shirt. 24. When the burglar alarm goes off at the school early on Monday morning, the security company doesn't call the police because it could take them hours to get there. They call one of the teachers instead. Not any teacher. They call the one whose little brother works for the security firm so that her brother won't have to go to the trouble of fetching his own keys. Jeanette gets out of her car in the deserted car park, pulls up the collar of her coat and blinks tiredly. Sometimes you're so lazy, I'm starting to think your kids must be adopted. Her brother laughs. Come on, sis, stop whining. You're the one who always says I don't call you often enough. She rolls her eyes, takes his flashlight off him and unlocks the side door to the school. It's probably just snow that slid off the roof on the sensors around the back again. They go into the corridor without turning the lights on because if anyone has broken in, the lights will have come on automatically in that section. But what sort of idiot would break into a school on a Monday morning? Benji is woken by a bright light even though the lamps in the ceiling are already on. His back aches. His mouth tastes of moonshine and peanuts which troubles him because he has no memory of having eaten the nuts. He sleepily holds up his hand and tries to squint at the person who is shining a light in his eye. You've got to be kidding, the teacher sighs. Benji pushes himself into a sitting position on top of the two desks he's been sleeping on in the classroom. He throws his arm out like the world's most exhausted magician. The headmaster did tell me I needed to start showing up on time in the morning. So, ta-da! Actually, what time is it? He feels his pockets. Can't find his watch. His fractured memories of the previous night suggest he may as well have drunk that away too. Precisely what train of thought led to him to conclude his little odyssey trying various substances with a break-in at his school is also a little vague in hindsight. But he's sure it must have seemed a superb idea at the time. The teacher leaves him without a word and he sees her talking with a security guard out in the corridor. The guard will write this off as a false alarm, seeing as brothers do what their big sisters tell them, no matter how old they get. The teacher comes back into the classroom and opens two windows to air out the room. She sniffs at Benji's jackets and makes a face. Please don't tell me you've brought drugs into the school. Benji does a poor job of wagging his finger at her. It would never even occur, occur, occur to me. Drugs in school are no good. I keep my drugs in my body. Do you want to dance? He falls off the desk with a giggle and lands on the floor on his back. The teacher crouches down beside him and looks him somberly until he falls silent. Then she says, If I report this to the headmaster, he'll have to suspend you. 
maybe even expel you from school and shall i tell you something benjamin sometimes i think that's what you want it's as if you're trying to prove to the whole world that there's nothing in your life that you aren't destructive enough to have to go at wrecking benji doesn't answer she hands him his jacket i'm going to switch the alarm off then i'm going to let you into the gym so you can take a shower to be honest you smell so terrible that i should probably call pest control as well have you got any clean clothes in your locker he tries to smile when she helps him up so that i look presentable when the headmaster arrives she sighs i'm not going to report you you're going to have to ruin your life on your own i'm not going to help you with that he meets her gaze and nods gratefully then his voice suddenly becomes adult his eyes a man's instead of a boy's i'm sorry i called you sweet cheeks that was disrespectful i won't do it again nor will anyone else on the team he rubs his neck and janet almost regrets telling the truth when she met up with audrey at the pub in here and was asked what his behavior in school was like she knows he's telling the truth when he says that no one on the team will call her that again and she wonders how he has come to have such an authority over the other students that a single word from benji can make any hockey player in the entire school start or stop doing anything it almost makes her miss playing the game herself she and audrey were childhood friends and they used to play together over in kid sometimes she feels that both she and audrey stopped too soon and wonders what would have happened if there had been a girls team in beartown go and shower she says patting benji's hand yes miss he smiles his eyes a boy's again i'm not usually fond of being called miss either she grunts what would you like to be called then janet janet will do absolutely fine she fetches a towel for him from the gym bag in her car and he follows her to the gym after she switched the alarm off and unlocked the door for him he stands in the opening and says you're a good teacher janet you just had really bad timing getting us in your class when we were at our best at that moment she understands why the team follows his lead the same reason why the girls fall for him when he looks you right in the eyes and says something no matter what crap he may have done immediately before you believe him dad knots his tie adjusts his cuffs slings and picks up his briefcase at first he considers calling goodbye to his son from the door like he usually does but he changes his mind and goes out through the patio door instead he puts his briefcase down and picks up a stick they stand side by side and take turns firing shots it must be 10 years since the last time i bet you can't hit the post his dad says kevin raises his eyebrow as if it's a joke when he sees that it isn't he pulls the puck back a couple of inches flexes his wrist light gently and sends the puck flying into the metal his dad taps his stick on the ground approvingly luck good players deserve luck kevin replies he learned that when he was little his dad has never let him win so much as a table ta- table tennis match in the garage did you see the statistics from the match the boy asks hopefully his dad nods and looks at his watch walks towards his briefcase i hope you don't imagine that the final is an excuse for you not 100% into your schoolwork this week kevin shakes his head his dad almost touches his cheek almost asks about the red marks on his neck but instead he clears his throat and says people in the town are going to try to stick to you more than usual now kevin so you need to remember that viruses make you sick you need to be immune to them and the final isn't about just hockey it's about what sort of man you want to be a man who goes out and grabs what he deserves or one who stands in a corner waiting for someone to give it to him the father walks off without waiting for a reply and his son stands there with scratch marks on his hand and a heartbeat that won't stop throbbing in his neck his mum is waiting in the kitchen kevin stares at her uncertainly there's freshly made breakfast on the table a smell of bread i well it's probably a bit silly but i took this morning off she says what for kevin wonders i thought we could spend some time together just you and me i thought we could talk 
He avoids her gaze. Mm. She looks a little too desperate for him to be able to handle eye contact. I have to go to school, mom. She nods, her teeth biting into her lower lip. Yes, yes, of course. It was silly. I'm silly. She feels like going after him and asking a million questions. Late last night, she found sheets in the dryer and he's never washed so much as a sock for himself before. There was a t-shirt there too, with blood stains that hadn't quite come off. When he was in the garden this morning, firing pucks, she went into his room, found the blouse button on the floor. She wants to go after him, but she doesn't know how to talk to an almost grown man through a closed bathroom door. She packs her briefcase and gets in her car and drives half an hour into the forest before stopping. She sits there all morning so that no one at work will ask why she is there so early. Because she told them she was going to be spending the morning with her son. Standing with her hand against the door of Maya's room but she doesn't knock again. Her daughter has already said she is ill and Kira doesn't want to be that mother. The nagging, uncool, anxious helicopter parent. She doesn't want to knock again to ask if there's actually something else wrong. You can't do that. Nothing makes a 15-year-old girl clam up more than the words. You want to talk. You can't just open the door and ask why she has suddenly started washing her own clothes of her own volition. After all, what is Kira, the secret service? So Kira does the not nagging, not anxious, not helicopter, cool mum thing. She gets in her car and drives off. 45 minutes into the forest, she stops the car, sits there alone in the darkness and waits for the pressure on her chest to subside. Lit opens the door and looks like he's just seen a cake. Kevin? Hi. Uh, what? Kevin nods at him impatiently. Ready? He asks Lit. For what? School? Now? With you? You mean, do I want to walk to school with you? Are you ready or not? Where's Benji? Fuck Benji, Kevin snaps. Lit stands there in shock with his mouth open, unable to think of anything to say. Kevin rolls his eyes impatiently. Are you waiting for communion or what? Shut your mouth for fuck's sake. Let's go. Lit stumbles off and hurries to make sure he's got his shoes on the right feet and his outdoor clothes at least relatively close to the appropriate body parts. Kevin doesn't say a word all the way until his outsized teammate grins and pulls out a hundred kroner note. So, do I owe you this or not? He starts giggling uncontrollably when Kevin takes it. Kevin tries to look nonchalant as he says, but keep your mouth shut about it, okay? You know what women are like. Lit has never looked more euphoric than when he was given the chance to share a secret with his team cap. Maya's phone rings and she wishes with all her soul that it might be Anna, but it's Amit again. She hides the phone under her pillow as if she was trying to smother it. She doesn't know what to say to him and she knows that Amit will primarily be wishing he hadn't seen anything at all. If she doesn't answer the phone, maybe the two of them can find some way of pretending that nothing happened, that it was just a misunderstanding. She removes the batteries from all the fire alarms and reopens all the windows before putting her blouse on the floor of the shower and setting light to it. Then she sets light to a carton of cereal, letting the top burn before putting it out and leaving the remains on the kitchen counter. When her mum, a woman with the nose of a hungry grizzly bear, comes home and wonders why there's a smell of smoke, the explanation will be that Maya managed to knock the carton of cereal onto a lid burner of the stove. She carefully sweeps up the remains of the blouse from the shower. And only then does she realize that the buttons have melted and stuck to the drain. And the synthetic material hasn't turned to ash the way she had hoped. If Anna had been there, she would have said, Shit, Maya, if I ever murder anyone, remind me not to ask you for help. She misses her. God, how she misses her. For several minutes, she sits on the bathroom floor trying and trying to make herself phone her best friend. But she can't do that to her. Can't drag her into this. Can't force her to carry this secret. It takes more than an hour to clean the bathroom and get rid of the remains of the burnt blouse. She puts them in a plastic bag, stands shaking in the doorway and stares at the dustbin 10 yards away. 
it's light outside now but that doesn't make any difference she's scared of the darkness in the middle of the day 25 anna is walking to school alone holding a phone in her hand like a weapon maya's number on the screen her finger on the button but she doesn't call the most important promise they made was never to leave each other not because of safety but because the promise made them equals they've never been equals in any other way maya still has two parents a brother a home that doesn't smell of cigarettes and vodka she's smart funny popular gets better grades she's musical brave she can get friends and she gets guys if anna left maya alone in the wilderness maya would die but what she didn't realize when she left maya alone at a party was that it amounted to the same thing anna keeps her fingers on the button but doesn't call in a few years time she'll read an old newspaper article about research showing that the part of the brain that registers physical pain is the same part that registers jealousy and then anna will understand why she hurt so badly amit and fatima are standing at the bus stop as usual but nothing else is the same when fatima was out shopping yesterday everyone said hello to her when she went to the cash register tails who owns the whole store came over and tried to give her everything free of charge she didn't let him of course no matter how wealthy he was and in the end the huge man threw up his hand and said with a chuckle you're as stubborn as winter i can see where amit gets it from his white car is coming along the road now a couple of minutes ahead of the bus he stops and says he's been to one of his other stores and just happened to be passing fatima doesn't know if it's true at first she declines his offer of a lift to the rink but changes her mind when she sees the way amit is looking at the car Tails is driving. Fatima is sitting in the passenger seat, and in the rearview mirror, she can see how proud that makes her son, that he has been able to make this happen. As the boy practices on his own that morning, Tails sits in the stands alongside the A-team coach and the GM. When Fatima goes into the club president's office to empty the bin, the president stands and picks it up off the floor for her. Takes her hand. The school corridor is already full of people when the boys walk in. Everyone turns to look at them, and Lit has never been so happy that Benji isn't around. The attention from people who think he is Kevin's new best friend is dizzying. That's why he doesn't react when Kevin mutters that he needs to shit and goes into one of the bathrooms. His old best friend would have known that Kevin never does that at school if he can possibly help it. Inside, in the dark, Kevin tears the hundred kroner note into tiny pieces and flushes them down the toilet. He doesn't switch the light on. doesn't look at himself in the mirror amit catches up with zacharias at the lockers they haven't seen each other since the game and only now does it occur to amit that perhaps he should have called when he sees the disappointment and anger in zacharias's eyes he realizes he should have done more than that hi sorry about saturday everything happened so fast i zacharias slams his locker shut and shakes his head i get it team party with your new team Look that's not what I meant Amit says but Zacharias doesn't let him get as far as an apology It's okay Amit you're a star now I get it Come on Zack I my dad said to congratulate you This last remark hurts Zacharias most of all His dad works at the factory everyone loves hockey there because the team was founded by factory workers they still feel that it belongs to them Zacharias would have done any number of ridiculous things to be able to send his dad off to work as the father of a junior team player The fact that his son is friends with one of them was enough to put a smile on his dad's face all the way there. Amit swallows the words he feels like saying and tries to find others instead, but doesn't have the time before Zacharias' cap Zacharias's cap flies off his head and his body thuds into the locker. Two final year pupils whose names Amit doesn't know laugh loudly. "Oops, didn't see you." One of them grins. "That must be the first time someone hasn't seen you, eh, fatty?" How much have you eaten? Another fat kid. The other one leers, pinching Zacharias's stomach. 
this sort of thing happens to Zacharias a lot. It's been going on for years, so the shock for all concerned is almost unimaginable when he suddenly flashes forward and headbutts one of them in the chest as hard as he can. The older boy staggers as if a sandbag had just hit back, and it takes a moment for him to come to his senses. But then his fist smashes straight into Zacharias's mouth. Ahmed cries out and throws himself between them. The two final year pupils evidently don't go to hockey matches because they don't hesitate to knock him to the floor. What have we got here then? A little terrorist? You're from the hollow, aren't you? Ahmed says nothing. The older boys goes on. There's nothing but terrorists and fucking camels in the hollow. Is that where you're from? Ahmed doesn't answer back. He's had a whole lifetime to learn that it only makes things worse. One of the older boy drags him up by his top and snarls. I said, where do you come from? No one has a chance to react. The noise when the back of a head hits a locker is so deafening that at first Ahmed thinks it must be his. Bobo picks up one of the final year pupil off the floor. Even though he's a year older than Bobo, he must be at least 20 pounds lighter. Bobo's voice is on fire when he clarifies. Beartown. His name is Ahmed and he's from Beartown. The older boy's eyes flit about until Bobo lets go of him, only to slam the back of his head into the locker again. With his face pressed up against the older boy's, he asks, Where's he from? Beartown. Bear down. Fuck. It was only a joke, Bobo. Bobo lets go of him and he and his friend runs off. Bobo helps Ahmed up and tries to hold out his hand to Zacharias too, but Zacharias brushes it aside. Bobo says nothing. Thanks, Ahmed says. You're one of us now. No one touches us. Bobo smiles. Ahmed looks at Zacharias. There's blood seeping from his friend's nose. I, I mean, we... I've got a class, see you at lunch. Everyone on the team always sits on the same table. Come and find us. Bobo interrupts, then disappears. Ahmed nods as he walks off. When he turns around, Zacharias has already taken his jacket and bag from his locker and is heading for exit. What the hell, Zach? Wait, come on. He helped you. Zacharias stops but doesn't turn around. He refuses to let Ahmed see his tears when he says, No, he helped you. So run along, big shot. Your new team is waiting for you. The door closes after him. Ahmed's conscience and a sense of guilt and injustice wash over him. If he hadn't been so worried about getting injured and missing the final, he would have slammed his fist into one of the lockers. He picks up his phone from the floor, calls no one. Menji's on his way to the classroom, but he happens to pass the laboratories just as Kevin emerges from one of the cubicles and it throws him off balance like an elbow from out of nowhere. Kevin hurries past, but Benji stops dead. He's not easily surprised, but he's left standing with his mouth half open and his eyes half closed. Kevin avoids looking at him as if he didn't exist. As long as the two friends can remember, anyone who has seen them play has said that they seem to be the same wavelength, a secret frequency that only they can access. They don't need to look at each other on the eyes to know where the other is. Neither of them has ever been able to put it into words. But whatever it was, there's nothing but static now. Kevin brushes the wall again off the corridor, shattered by lit, and the other juniors automatically fall in on all sides. Benji has never known who he would have been if he didn't have this team, but he's starting to realize that he's about to find out now. When Kevin let Bobo and the others go into the classroom, Benji stands outside trying hard not to prove to the whole world that there is nothing in his life that he isn't destructive enough to have a go at wrecking. He really does try. When Jeanette takes attendance, she looks out of the window and sees Benji light a cigarette in the schoolyard, get on his bicycle and ride off. The teacher hesitates for a moment, then she marks him as present anyway. Anna turns up the brightness of the screen to maximum, opens all her apps and starts a film before leaving her phone in the locker. She treats herself like an alcoholic emptying 
her home of bottle she knows that before the morning is over she won't be able to resist calling maya any longer she wants to make sure that the battery will be exhausted by then making it impossible it doesn't matter who sits where at lunch that day everyone eats lunch on their own did you reach the end don't worry what happens next is coming really really soon meanwhile check out the spotify playlist follow me wherever a podcast is available by the name what saves me from drowning by adya follow the instagram page or the facebook page let's connect that's pretty much all about the self advertising that i can manage see you i hope you have a day that even if it's not very very good it's not very very bad either and you get through it everything will be okay sayonara